What's up, everybody? This is FTW with Ahmad Khan. I'm your host, Ahmad Khan, and joining me today on this Brackets Are Big Business Edition is Dexerdo's Andy Williams. Hey, what's up, guys? And later on, we'll be joined by Manager of Competition Operations at Call of Duty League, Matthew Matt.Zeb Zaborowski. But first, Valorant. This past weekend, 100 Thieves upset TSM and Valorant's first major, First Strike. The two-month-old roster, which completely restructured in October around former Counter-Strike professional Spencer Hiko Martin, beat favorites TSM. Leading up to the event, TSM were seen as the strongest team in North America. But after 100 Thieves' win, at least for Martin, it shows that a slower, more deliberate pace is what leads to championship wins, not individual talent or pure aggression. Quote, It does feel like a lot of these teams aren't really thinking tactically, said Martin during a post-game interview. They're thinking in the style that we've been talking about, of... Let our individual performers run out, get all the kills, and we'll just win in the 5v3s and 5v2s. But the second they go up against a team that has the experience and, the, and that plays more tactically, I can feel that sometimes they feel kind of lost. So Andy, now that first strike is over, to you, what are some of the key takeaways? Yeah, so following all this uh, first strike action, right, we saw a lot of uh, we saw a lot of action across the globe, first and foremost, and... There was a lot of teams that caused some up de- uh, upsets, really. Um, I mean, the big narrative over on Europe across the pond was the Titan killers of Team Heretics. Team Heretics coming in as big, heavy underdogs. And um, obviously, you know, turning over some big teams, some big names, big brands like Team Liquid, G2 Esports. Uh, and they looked very convincing in doing so. Um, obviously, going back across the pond over to North America... We saw the likes of uh, Sentinels and TSM coming in as heavy favorites after their Ignition Series wins and the rivalries that had kick-started there. And then 100 Thieves kind of almost came out of nowhere, really. You know, we, we, we've, we've seen them kind of look promising and the roster on paper looked fantastic. Open qualifiers came around and no one was really putting them at the forefront of their minds. It was all TSM, Sentinels. And then... It just seemed to click. Hiko and 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 Co kind of really came into their own in in the open qualifiers, and TSM tried to palm off their loss as a quote fluke, uh, and it was nice to see a hundred thieves replicate that same form carrying over into the into the finals. Um, so yeah, it it's really good to see you know an organization of that caliber on top. Uh, it's been. It's been long, a long time coming for, for Hiko. Uh, I know this is his first major win, even though he spent the best part of a decade in Counter-Strike. So, yeah. And then, of, obviously, looking you know at the globe as a whole, we have other teams that are starting to shine in their own respective regions. So, in uh, Korea, for example, we have Vision Strikers. And TSM's player, Hayes, has actually come out and said that they base a lot of their strategies from this Korean team. Um, and then, of course, we have you know other teams as well, like the Absolute Jupiters of Japan. And it'll be very interesting to see how these teams all come together on the international stage, for sure. TSM coach Taylor Taylor Brumal said that they're the more technically skilled team, or more mechanically skilled team, but flubbed it in the execution. I mean, do you do you really feel that was the case? It's a tough call. Uh, mechanically skilled, no. Um. I personally wouldn't say that the likes of TSM are more mechanically skilled. Now, that's not to dispute the fact that they are a mechanically skilled team. Um, you know, it only takes a brief look at the statistics. They, there was, I believe, three of their players 
so you have Drone, Sub Rosa and Wardell were in the top six of the global finals, statistically speaking. Uh, and and that, that metric there, we normally look at something like average combat score. Um, so in terms of the talent, it's definitely there. Um, but, but when it comes to them being the most mechanically skilled team, it's a difficult one to say when we haven't really seen the full caliber of players and what the potential is. You know, this this esports still in its infancy, right? Right, and you know, I mean, what? I guess where do you feel that you know things will shift in the upcoming twenty twenty one season? I mean, how will TSM try to you know get back from this loss? Well, it's funny you should say so. We run uh, the Valorant Updates Twitter page, and we've recently put out some interview segments that we placed on there from First Strike. And Hazed, um, one of the veteran players on the TSM roster, actually came out and said that he still firmly believes that they were the better team. So I think, you know, now looking ahead to 2021, we have the Valorant Champions Tour coming up. And I think the big narrative is going to be some of these rivalries starting to blossom before we really get onto the international stage. So regionally, we'll start to see some of these bigger organizations go toe-to-toe. You know, we've seen Sentinels and TSM kind of exchange blows over social media. You know, 100 Thieves seem to be coming into that as like a triad there. Over in Europe, we've had the G2 Liquid FPX rivalry for quite some time, but now, you know, the likes of Heretics and Summon are coming in and um, they're taking some scalps. So it'll be very interesting to see whether or not, you know, those underdogs, quote unquote, can uh, can hold up their end of the bargain when we get to the very big stage of the Champions Tour. And then explain TSM's triple duelist composition. I mean, for somebody who doesn't follow Valorant, like what does that exactly mean? And is this an effective strategy moving forward? It's a really good question. So, I mean, first and foremost, triple duelist. What that means, essentially, we have different agent types within the game, right? So character types. And a duelist is one of the, if not the more aggressive character type. So their abilities are tailored to be able to allow someone utilizing that character to going headfirst, gung-ho, and take the fight to the team, right? So, you know, naturally that lends itself to a more aggressive play style. Now, the triple duelist composition is something that North American Valorant has boasted and kind of wore on its sleeve throughout First Strike. Now, with regards to that being the only meta, I wouldn't say so. You know, different regions seem to be utilizing different agent compositions in different ways. For example, we don't really see that so much over on the European side. One thing that I will say, though, is that TSM are very vocal and are very um, stubborn in the fact uh, that they don't like to use sentinel agents who typically are on the other side of the spectrum which offer a more passive approach to the game um again another interesting thing that came from the hazed interview that we recently did was his thoughts on sky and that's the latest agent to actually be added to the game and she provides a lot of uh, flashing abilities and also a lot of map control abilities as well so she kind of crosses that bridge uh, between you know not requiring the, re- requiring the sentinels for information like a cipher would provide um, and obviously being able to utilize a triple duelist composition 
do you feel that Valorant might run into the same issue as Overwatch League, where it might need to go into like this two-two-two setup, uh, which essentially means uh, having essentially two of uh, you. You know, your teams can only be made up of like um, two characters of each class. You can't have like three of one class uh, per team. Well, I think Riot have been very vocal in in their objective here, right? That they're looking to provide a very, very, very wide spectrum of uh, characters, character abilities. And I think getting stuck into a, a narrative or a, or a specific formation is only going to hinder teams moving forward, right? It's going to hamstring them. Um, you know, I think the more fluid teams and the teams that look more promising now are the teams that kind of have more strings to their bow. You know, for example, we've seen Summon FC, you know, a team that's kind of come from nowhere, really. And those that might not have tapped into the EU scene before First Strike wouldn't have heard of Summon FC. But that team, they utilized a plethora of agents. We had one specific player, Doma. Actually, I believe he utilized five different agents in the event. And I think he used three or four different agents in the grand final alone. And that ranged from Duelist all the way down to Sentinel. So I think being able to be versatile in your approach is most likely going to prove mo uh, the most beneficial for teams uh, moving forward. Mm. And then final two questions. Uh, you know, while we don't have official numbers, the data provided by eSports charts suggests that First Strike peaked at uh, 300,000 viewers in North America with another 106,000 in Europe and 72,000 in Turkey. What do you make of these numbers? It's difficult. It's a very, it's a very difficult metric to hold an eSport that is in its infancy by. I think there's a lot of excitement around Valorant right now in terms of what it can bring to the scene, uh, you know, esports as a whole. Uh, the excitement also revolves a lot about uh, around Riot being at the helm of this. You know, we all know what they've done with League of Legends um, and the partners that they've had involved in that and the way that they've actually managed to open that up to a global audience. But when it comes to Valorant specifically, I think we're in quite a unique position. Um, I think it has all of the I think it has all of the ingredients of, of a counter strike in the sense that it has these tension curves that we build up to every round and it, it allows the spectator to remain gripped. But it's also it's also very PG, right? In the sense that it's brand friendly, it's it's very marketable. And I think this is just the start for Valorant. Um, in my personal opinion, it's a case of watch this space. But I think that we probably want to answer that question at the end of Champions Tour this time next year. That's when we'll truly see whether or not Riot and Valorant will be successful with this as an esport. Mm. And then last question. Unlike other teams, 100 Thieves was able to play at, uh, together at the Cash App compound in Los Angeles. Um, according to Martin, this is a big reason for their success. Uh, even if the coronavirus lingers late into next year, do you feel that other teams will try to make sure its players are together under one roof? I mean, I mean, they have to, right? You know, we've, we've seen that 100 Thieves is a roster relatively new, you know, compared to Sentinels, T1, uh, compared to TSM. Uh, they've, all, they've all been together since, since the start of the game, right? And then this, this new roster, you know, a band of veterans and a couple of newbies have come together and they've they've blown the competition out of the water you know it's fair to say holding no bias here 100 thieves are the best team in north america you know they've proved that they can take down the big dogs they've proved that they can also take down the little man so it's not just a case of being able to devise specific strategies 
it shows that they are a versatile team. And I think a lot of that success pertains to the fact that they were able to boot camp. Um, so being, for teams to be able to boot camp, I think it's a very essential ingredient in being able to prepare yourself for a tournament. And I think 100 Thieves were the, the ones to take it the most seriously, right? You know, they, they said they prepared for this like a major. It meant a lot to them, uh, both as an organization and then also for the players. You know, I've mentioned previously that Hiko really wanted that coveted major. He didn't get it in Counter-Strike. He comes over to Valorant. A lot of people judged him very late on in his career. And hey, presto, he puts in the work. He gets the right guys on his team. And there he is with that with that major trophy. So, yeah, I think teams need to boot camp. Um, with regards to the impact of the global pandemic, you know, Riot have put in, in plays here to, uh, to try and kind of um, account for that. So they have contingency plans for their Masters level tournaments in the Champions Tour. These Masters level tournaments, just to preface, are meant to be the first international tournaments and the first of which is scheduled for around March of 2021. So there is contingency plans in place to be able to allow for players to play, uh, you know, at a regional level until the global pandemic passes, um, you know, with the next Masters tournament looking to occur middle of next year. But obviously teams, you know, ahead of that will definitely need to boot camp, especially if they want to shine on the global stage, for sure. Mm. Well, with that, Andy, thank you so much for jumping on. Not a problem. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. And now I'm joined by Matthew Matt.Zeb Zabarowski. Last week, esports tournament organization platform Smash.gg was purchased by Microsoft for an undisclosed amount. Smash.gg was founded in 2015 as a competitor to Challenge. The goal was to help tournament organizers better organize entrants and give fans a way to follow brackets. It started off focusing on the fighting games community, but has since expanded to include Rocket League and Hearthstone. Microsoft's acquisition is a curious one. Microsoft hasn't pursued esports with the same level of gumption as Activision Blizzard, but maybe there are plans to better integrate with esports using Smash.gg and its Azure platform. Matt used to work at Smash.gg. At the moment, the company has been hush on what this acquisition means, but Matt might be able to give us some insight. So Matt, having worked at Smash.gg, was this type of acquisition always in the blueprint? No. No, it was not. Um, you know, it was certainly something that had began to to be discussed in the latter years that I, I was there. Uh, I was there for about three and a half years. Um, but when I had initially joined, um, you know, it, a lot of the focus was primarily about building out the platform rather than uh, selling uh, or being acquired by, by any entity at all. Um, there was, you know, the potential for it. I mean, were you there when the company raised that $11 million in Series A funding? Yes, I was. I had joined um, a few months after the seed round had happened, uh, which I believe was late 2015. I had joined in June 2016 is when I received my offer. And, you know, what was interesting when I heard that news, I mean, $11 million in the tech world is not a lot of money. But for a platform that was so grassroots like Smash.gg, it seemed like a lot of money. I mean, was that a lot of money? I mean, well, absolutely. It was the most money I'd ever been I, I never even really had seen. I, uh, my my background is not in tech at all. Um, you know, it's in it's in esports and in Smash in particular. Um, I was working at a call center before joining the company, so it was a huge shock to me to be joining a tech startup and and you know the the culture around that and and just the scrappy nature of it. I mean, after that Series A funding came in, what was the company able to do that it couldn't have prior? Well, we nearly doubled in size. 
following that, um, I think within the next maybe 10 months, we had, we had hired an additional 25, 30 people. Um, when the Series A had come in, we had about 20-ish. So that allowed us to break out into many more teams to begin working on different parts of the site in congruence um, that we otherwise would have had to put off. So it allowed for more uh, product and engineering development. We were able to increase the size of our partner support team. Um, and we're able to hire part-time members as well to begin offloading some of the work from the full-time mm -hmm. employees in terms of uh, customer support and more of the day-to-day -day recurring tasks that we would do for the organizers on our platform. And you know that's really interesting because I'm trying to think, like, I feel that the underlying technology for Smash.gg isn't necessarily, like, crazy complicated, at least not complicated for a company as large as Microsoft. So, I mean... But is or am I, do I just have like a completely ill-conceived notion of what is actually happening underground at Smash.gg? Perhaps for people that aren't engineers, it is easy for, to think of. Um, well, this is this is just a software. Like you know, other other companies can build it. Why you know why why is it necessarily valuable? But you also have to consider that this software has five years of development within it, um, and as you're building out something like that. Um, it's it's certainly not an easy thing to to replicate. There's a lot of sort of changes and forks along the way that you might not have uh, anticipated. So nobody could really go into the Smash GG code base necessarily and say, I I'm going to copy this. As, as the years went on, there were lots of refactors and things of that nature. But, um, you know, I think the sheer amount of time that this software has been being built out with the expertise that it has had behind it, um, you know, especially if you're building a, a comprehensive tournament operations software, you absolutely need people who understand competitions. You need people who understand the industry that they are pitching these um, the software to. And that's not to say that Microsoft wouldn't be able to source those people, but um, SmashGG very clearly built itself out with a core team of individuals that have a high degree of expertise with competitions and within the Smash community, which is the Smash community being the um, game that the platform had really pioneered itself with. Uh, so maybe it's like to an extent that because Smash.gg was a grassroots thing that's grassroots, you know, thing that started from the Smash community and is homegrown, it's not something you can necessarily throw money at. You know, it's something that. Uh, maybe if Microsoft did try to create a competitor, it, it wouldn't have necessarily caught on. Do you, do you think that could be a line of thinking? Certainly. I think it's a lot easier to acquire comprehensive software than create it on your own. Um, the company was in a position to be acquired, um, so it was an easy fit for Microsoft, I, I believe. The platform itself began development with community members providing feedback regularly, um, you know, the, the founders of the company had started going to smash tournaments in 2014, 2015, and began to know who the people running the larger events are and bringing them into weekly product update calls as the software was first being built out. So there was a lot of very specific feedback for the smash brothers community in particular to make this software, something that will be an improvement on all other bracket softwares that they have used prior. Yeah, so I mean, the way that Smash.gg made its money was through merch sales for um, to help you know build funds for tournaments. Correct. I wouldn't say Smash.gg made its money through that. I wouldn't say Smash.gg at any point. I mean, it was never a profitable company, and merchandise sales were 
largely going to the organizer. Smash EG might take a 5 to 10% cut of the total, depending on the amount of work that Smash EG had done in setting up the shop with their own full-time resources. But the platform itself was never profitable, and the shop revenue was never anything that, it, you know, I wouldn't say it, it paid for a single employee's salary. Most of that, you know, anything within the shops, would we would be giving it back to the community, back to the organizer that, uh, you know, is running the event. I see, I see. And then I guess my last question that everyone's kind of wondering is, uh, how much do you think Microsoft paid for Smash.gg? I assume it's at least $11 million. I actually know, and I can't say. <laughs> um, well, very cool. Let's jump on to the LACS3, and we'll touch on this really quickly. So there's a an upcoming online charity Smash tournament featuring Melee and Project M uh, being run by streamer Ludwig, Ludwig Ogren. Mm-hmm. And the idea, from what I gather, is it's a way to kind of challenge Nintendo uh, after its cease and desist order for the big house online. And according to Ogren's video, it would be very bad optics for Nintendo to try to cancel a charity tournament. And uh, I mean, how much money has Ogren raised so far? I haven't looked at it today, but the last I had seen, it was over $70,000. And that was with a starting point of him putting 10000 of his own up. Um, I believe the donations that he has driven are separate from that. So if I'm, if I'm not mistaken about that, then we're looking at over $80,000 currently. Does that make it the the largest Smash uh, I don't know, prize pool in history? Mm, I don't think it has because he's not bragging about it on social media yet. I see, um, I see, I see. <laughs> um, But no, I, I, I mean that lightheartedly, of course. Um, but no, it is it is at least the second. However, I do know this. Mm-hmm. And has has there been any rumblings from uh, Nintendo's lawyers? If there have been, they aren't making it apparent to the community. Okay, okay. Well, I think this is something that we'll have to check back in on uh, after the after the tournament happens, or uh, who knows? Maybe there are some more developments that happen in the upcoming week. When when can mm-hmm. viewers check out the tournament? That's the nineteenth and twentieth of the December. Nineteenth uh, this and month. Twentieth. Okay, very cool. So just later this month. Twitch.tv slash Ludwig. L-U-D-W-I-G. It should be very exciting. Uh, it's certainly a, a great initiative. He is incredibly entertaining on the mic, and he is putting uh, his best foot forward for this community, which he has, uh, I, I guess you could say, originated from. You know, um, And it's, it's thrilling to see that. Well, with that, thank you so much for jumping on, Matt. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on today. This was very fun talking to you. And that was FTW with Aman Khan. If you like the show, please rate, subscribe, and share. Full transcripts of the show, as well as links to our Patreon, can be found at ftwamod.com. To follow Andy and keep up to date on Valorant Esports, follow him at 05AMW on Twitter. To follow Matt and everything Smash and Call of Duty League, you can find him at .zeb on Twitter. To follow me and my writing over at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and elsewhere, find me at Imad on Twitter. And Ron Lines is our audio producer. With that, we'll catch you guys next week.